Daniel chapter 3. Daniel 3. Last couple of weeks we've been making our way through the book of Daniel and um, taking a chapter a week. We will run through Daniel chapter 6. Chapter 3 this week, very well-known passage of Scripture, and I hope that you will be encouraged as we look together at God's Word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning that we are able to be a family, uh, that we're able to come into this place and celebrate You and Your work together. Um, we're here because of Your grace. Uh, we would not all be in this room together had it not been for the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, he is the one, You are the one who has brought us together to love one another, to love You, to serve uh, to have summer Bible camp, things like that, for the purpose of spreading the joy of Jesus Christ to all people. And we pray, God, that the work that was done over the last week uh, will bring forth fruit in due time. As Arnie mentioned, there were seeds that were planted, and um, not just in the kids. Uh, there was a work done in the hearts of your people as we serve with one another. And we ask, God, that you would raise up fruit from that as well. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read to you the beginning, the opening paragraph of a book on missions by John Piper. It's called, Let the Nations Be Glad. He says, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. What Piper wants us to understand is that the reason that missions exists is to bring non-worshippers of the one true God into relationship with Him so that they can know His joy and give Him the worship He deserves, not just now, but into eternity forever and ever. That's why missions exist for the purpose of bringing forth worshipers, not the other way around. Worship is ultimate. Worship is the overflow of the heart's delight in a person or an object Worship is the overflow of the heart's delight in that thing. Worship demonstrates the pleasure and commitment given to something, the priority that that object has, the ideology that you're committed to, the lifestyle, the status, whatever that thing is, that thing is a God in your life. The God sets the agenda. The God owns first place in the heart. And Christianity is the conviction that rightful worship belongs to the rightful God. Christianity is the fight for the heart. All hearts worship. And what we want is each heart in our neighborhood, certainly in our homes, our families, co-workers, we want each heart to worship the one true and living God and not some false substitute. Piper gives this brief definition of worship. He says, Worship means cherishing the preciousness of God above all else, including life itself. Cherishing the preciousness of God above all else, including life itself. And so my aim this morning is to address your worship Worship is not simply the term that we used when we come into this building on Sunday mornings and sing songs to God. Worship is what you naturally do. It's what you do when you delight in an ultimate thing. You and I praise the things we enjoy, don't we? We praise the people we love. We praise beautiful scenery. We praise our favorite sports team, right? But all praise is not necessarily worship. 
Just as you praise the Buffalo Bills on Sunday afternoons in the fall, you also praise the one true God on Sunday mornings in the fall. Worship is not simply the enjoyment of a thing. It's a commitment to trust in and obey that thing. It has your heart. It leads you. It guides you. It controls the things that you do. That is your God. Piper uses those words, cherishing the preciousness. We cherish what we find precious. You can't help but think of Gollum and the Lord of the Rings who cherishes his precious ring. The ring is his ultimate commitment. He must have it above all else. And anything that gets in his way, he's willing to steamroll right over that just to have his precious ring back. He trusts in it. He obeys the impulse to pursue it it is His God and it is His worship. So all of this talk about worship as we look at Daniel chapter 3. Because worship is the primary concern of this story. And it's why I titled this sermon after the statement that these three men give in response to the king when they say, we will not serve your gods. We won't exchange the worship of the one true living God for your false gods. And so the issue of worship was primary in their minds. They understood that there is one thing that a man cannot get wrong, and that is who his God is. You can get a lot of things wrong in life. You can mess a lot of things up and make a lot of mistakes, but this should not be one of them. Who is your God? What owns your heart? And who do you worship? Let's look at Daniel chapter 3. I'm going to read the entire chapter. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to, the, to gather the satraps the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before that image that he had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever! You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the fiery burning furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace." Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would bless the reading of your word and the preaching of your word. Speak to our hearts. Convict us, God, of your worship being ultimate in our hearts and that any other worship might be rooted out of us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So just a quick review here of what happened here in the story and then I hope some, some application. So out on the plain of Dura, outside of the city of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar had built a statue. It's interesting that this event comes right after the chapter where he had a dream about the statue. We're told it is 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. And just to give you some perspective on the size of that thing, our church building is probably around 50 feet tall. And so this statue would have been twice the height of our church, but probably only about the width of the front steps. Think about that. Kind of an odd shape, isn't it? I think it probably would have looked like a massive totem pole. And we're not told what the statue looked like, whose image it represented, just that it was made of gold. And it very well could have been an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself, seeing as though he was the head of gold in his dream statue. But more likely, this would have been an image representing one of the many gods of the Babylonian pantheon. They were polytheistic, meaning that they worshipped many gods there. And there's no evidence that any Babylonian kings ever thought of themselves as being gods. But no matter what the statue represented, it was very important to Nebuchadnezzar that the people all fall down, bow, and worship it. It is quite a production that he puts together here. He wants to ensure that everybody from Babylon comes out to partake in this celebration. So he invites all the, the, um, the higher-ups in the kingdom, all the governors, satraps, prefects, princes, things like that, to come out and see this statue. There's an orchestra of all sorts of musical instruments. Did you notice how many times it is repeated, all the various instruments that are out there for this celebration? And all the guests are told by the herald that whenever music plays, 
Everyone is to bow down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. That is repeated seven times. It is the image that he set up. And they say, in essence, by the way, though we are sure that nobody is going to be this dumb, if any of you all choose to not worship the image, look behind you over there at that great fiery furnace, you will be thrown into it. And the way the story portrays the furnace, it is something that can be fallen into. And so we don't have to get a lot of details of what that furnace looked like, but it was something they could fall down into. And what I picture in my mind is a giant version of the furnace. If you all have ever been down in the boiler room of our church, there's a scary looking furnace down there with a door on it. Looks like Hansel and Gretel's oven, you know? Maybe you all have seen the movie Home Alone and Kevin McAllister is very afraid of the furnace down in the basement and its mouth is going up and down looking like it's going to eat some. That's what I have in my mind, but this furnace is not like that. We're told by archaeologists that furnaces in their day, they look like a giant bottle turned on its side, opening on one end, opening on the top. And apparently this particular furnace was laid up against a hill because they were able to get access to the top of the furnace to where they could fall down into it. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 7 says, As soon as they heard the music, all the people who were out there, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up except for three men. Some Chaldeans, it's a name for the wise men, maybe some astrologers, the people who Daniel probably saved in the last chapter by interpreting the dream. Some of these men approach the king and we're told that they maliciously accused the Jews. I found it interesting that these words, maliciously accused, means to chew up. And so their words were like grinding these men up with their teeth. They hated them. They must have hated the fact that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had taken some of the top jobs in the land. And it did not escape the attention of these men that these three were Jews. They make sure to point that out to the king. And so anti-Semitism was alive and well in Babylon. And these wise men, they pander to the pride of the king and, and tell him that these three men, they do not listen to you. They do not care what you say. They withhold their worship from the statue that you built, O great king, who we hope will live forever. Verse 12. He says, there are certain Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego specifically, they do not serve your gods. They do not worship the golden image that you've set up. And so here again, we see the primary concern is worship. They don't worship what you do. They don't love what you do. They don't bow the knee to you. We know the king couldn't have been pleased about this, and the Scripture tells us he certainly was not. He went into a furious rage, brings the three men in front of him, and we see there in verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? He tells them that he will give them one more chance because he is so gracious. Now the music's going to play again. And if you choose to bow down and worship these gods, all will be well with you. We'll just go back to like this never happened before. But if you don't, you're going to be cast into that fiery furnace. And then his statement that is so telling. And who is the God who can deliver you out of my hand? In Nebuchadnezzar's mind, there was no God like this who could save from his powerful hand. Maybe you're here today and you've not heard this story before now. Maybe this is the first time that you have heard this story read 
out loud. And maybe you weren't paying a few paying attention a few minutes ago when I read it, and you don't know exactly what's coming next. Because if you do know the outcome, and you've heard this story maybe many times, it's hard to rehear this story again without with the same power and the same anticipation that you had the first time that you listened and you thought, what's happening next? What happens to these men? We might think that as we're reading this, after we've heard it, that they are already having knowledge that they will be saved. So they answer the king with the confidence knowing that this fire is not going to hurt them. But you need to understand that they did not know that when they answered him. They tell the king that they have no reason to defend their position. We're not going to grovel. We're not going to cry in front of you. We have no reason, they say, to answer the king in this matter, saying, we don't have to defend ourselves. Our mind is set, our, our will is determined. This is what we're going to do. Nebuchadnezzar has just asked the question, what God is able to save you out of my hand? And these men reply that they know a God who is able to do just that. There is no human hand or human will that is too strong for their God to break. And they don't claim to know what God will do in this moment, but He is surely able, they say, to save, him, to save them if He wants. But if God chooses not to save, they are willing to go to their death knowing that they have not given themselves over to pagan worship. We will not serve your gods. That's what they say in verse 18. But if not, if God does not save us, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And so there it is. There is their line in the sand. Worship is ultimate. And there are a lot of things that these men find themselves capable of doing in Babylon with a good conscience but they will not worship their gods. A few weeks ago, we looked at Romans chapter 1 together and talked about the primary problem in our culture, or any culture being the abandonment of the worship of God. But I made it clear that even though God is not worshipped out there in the culture, we very much have a worshipping people all around us because everyone worships. People are worshipers by nature. They have been made by God to do so. It's part of our makeup. We do worship and bow down to something, even if it is not physical, even if it's an idea. There are lots of ideas out there that people will give their allegiance to. They will love and they will trust in something, every person out there, even if it is self. But worship we must. And sin creates chaos. Chaos in worship. It disorders worship. But everybody will worship something. Marketers understand worship. Commercials understand worship. They don't call it that. But they get the fact that human beings are going to yield their lives to something, and it is their job to persuade the mass of human beings to yield their lives to the attractiveness of whatever it is that they're selling. So they harness the truth of human worship with sex and money, beauty, status, and wield their cultural influence on the heart to worship what they sell. And it is clear, isn't it, that our political realm also deals in worship because of the passion that's involved and it hearts belong to those ideas. People trying to get their way and they are willing to lash out when they don't. We see that every day. People whose worship is being thwarted. They aren't getting their heart's desire and they hate. That's what we see here with King Nebuchadnezzar. When these men refuse to worship his gods or serve them, they get his furious 
rage. What is it that our culture delights in? What is it that makes up the pantheon of gods that are out there that we are called to worship? Complete freedom in sexuality is the God the culture demands that you bow to. That's one of them. In every form. Don't push back or you will be cast off. Not into a fiery, burning furnace that kills the body, but in every other way that is socially acceptable. And that's constantly changing. Any institution that does not bow the knee, the forces of government and law and cultural ostracism, they are increasingly ratcheting up the pressure on them. You must bow. You must. Same goes for bodily freedom. Just not the bodily freedom of a preborn baby. The Supreme Court did not bow the knee to the God of self last month, and the outcry was great in the land. Death threats, shouts of wanting to change the government structure, vandalism, marches. Why? Why would such a thing happen? Because to some, it is an ultimate thing. It's a God who must be worshipped by all. Well, these men refuse to worship the gods of the Babylonians. And I think increasingly so, you will be called to worship the gods of popular American culture. I've just named a couple of the obvious ones, but you and I need to check our hearts for those that are much more respectable and accepted in the place where we have been born and bred. A place that calls greed good, at least on one particular movie. Greed's admired in the, in the possessions that we choose to collect for ourselves. This is a place where entertainment, if you haven't noticed, has a vice grip on the hearts of young and old. Like how much time can possibly be spent on entertainment? Hollywood shapes the love of the masses. Sports owns the hearts of fans. I mean, have you seen Bill's fans? And what they're willing to do for their team? Leaping and crashing on tables and whatnot. I mean, we love passion, do we not? But does it own their heart? I'd say with many it probably does. Worship happens in the stadiums. Worship happens in the movie theaters. Worship happens in the malls. The culture has erected a lot of temples out there to the gods that are worshipped. So my question for you this morning is, is, do these gods own your hearts too? And maybe it's not any one particular thing, not one of these things that does. But maybe a collection of them all together, all the forces of culture as they are pressing in on your heart, they leave no space in there for the one true living God. God gets the scraps, doesn't He? So often, after we do all the things that we really love, His worship, He might get five minutes. It is insidious. It is everywhere. And it is a brilliant satanic design. And so it was obviously satanic in the plot against these three Jewish men in their day. But I don't think it is so obvious, so clear to us in the free market capitalistic culture where entertainment and sports and wealth and comfort have all become the norm to us. Somehow, though, in the middle of all of it, God's people are called to be different. These things cannot own our hearts, and when these things do not own our hearts, and it's clear to the culture that we reject what they love, 
We must not, as Peter says, think it strange when the fiery trial comes upon you. So when you don't love the things that they love, you don't do the things that they do, you don't go the places and devote yourself in their temples like everybody else does, there's going to be some natural pushback. So don't think it strange when the fiery trial comes upon you. Where do you think Peter got that phrase from? Right here. Right here with what happens to these three men in Daniel chapter 3. When the fiery trial hits them after they have determined that they will not worship the gods of their culture. And so when you do not worship the God of the culture, whatever it is, expect the fiery trial in some measure to come upon you. Nebuchadnezzar here, he had the furnace heated up as hot as it goes. He was screaming mad. He ordered these three Jews to be bound by mighty men, strong men, thrown in with all their clothes. Had to probably think they want them burning as soon as the flames get close. Set their hats, their coats, everything on fire. And it was so hot, it said it was because it was so overheated that the mighty men that bound them died at the mouth of the furnace. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they fell in. That's that. Story over, right? But it wasn't. The king is watching. It says that he jumps up in amazement. He's astonished at what he sees. He looks in. He asks his people like, hey, hey, there were just three. Right? Only three? Did y'all happen to throw a fourth man in? Because I'm looking in and I'm seeing all the men, including a fourth, walking around in there unbound. So it burned off the robes or whatever had them held. And they're walking around inside there freely. And they said that the fourth man had the appearance like a son of the gods. So now he wants to know what's going on. And he orders that the men come out. Nothing was harmed on them. Not their clothes, not their bodies, not their hair. Nothing was singed. The fire had no power over them. They had been miraculously protected, miraculously delivered. And look at verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, after he sees this, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. A moment ago, he said, What God is going to save you? Now he knows who has the power to do such the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent His angel and delivered His servants who trusted in Him. And they set aside the king's command, and they were willing to yield up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. So again, the crux of the matter to these men is that they refuse to serve any god other than their own. And may it be said of God's people today that we will not do so either. Before we close, I wanted to point from this story to Christ and the promises of God that we can see here to those people who belong to Him. We have a delivering God. We see that here. And He is still a delivering God today. And the way that He does that might not look the same as what happened in the lives of these three men. Now they acknowledge that that could have been the case with them too. Because don't you think that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had witnessed many faithful Jews since their time in Babylon give their lives for the worship of the one true living God. They had to have seen that. So they knew that God does not have to save them. That's why they shape the answer the way they do. Now, He could save us from the fire if He wants to. But if not, just know we're willing to burn. Because worship is ultimate. We won't give, we won't give our worship to your gods. We will give our lives to demonstrate that. It's that important. 
And we need to understand that in our lives, God does not always work a delivering miracle like what we see here in this passage. He doesn't have to. Our response is like these men say. Our God's able. I believe that. Do you believe that? Some of the binds that you find yourself in it from time to time, some of the trials that you find yourself in. God is able to do whatever He wants to do. He could save me from anything in this world if He wants to, but He doesn't have to. But no matter what, I'm going to be faithful to Him. No matter what the consequences are. So I'm going to close with four truths and an illustration of what Christ has done for us in delivering us. Number one, God in Christ delivers you from false worship. He delivers you from false worship. And so before faith, whenever that was for you, whenever that moment came, when you saw Jesus Christ, and what Piper says there in that opening phrase, we cherish what we find precious. So has there been a moment in your life when you saw Jesus Christ and He became precious to you? And you began to cherish Him, treasure Him, value Him above everything else. I hope you can say yes to that. God's offer of salvation is there today for any who would look to Jesus Christ and be saved. But for those of you who have come to that point at some time in your life, before that, you bowed the knee to another God. I hear the story from time to time. I've always known God. No. No, you haven't. Now, you knew about God. You knew there's a God out there somewhere. But you did not always know Him in a saving and personal way. Now, some of you, it could have been from a very young age, and you don't remember when that time came. Praise God for that. But I would say for most of you here in this room, you were probably adults when you came into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, where you heard the promise, you heard that you could be forgiven of your sins, you heard about Jesus in a different way than you ever had before. Same message, but you received it differently. Now you believed it. Before, it's hearsay. I think it could have happened. And there came a time when you know it did happen when He gave His life for sinners like you. It became personal. But before that day, you bowed the knee to a foreign God with a clear conscience. You did it willingly. You loved it. And you lived for those things. Might have included a little bit of Jesus in your life too, just to make sure that you had all of your bases covered. But he was not on the throne. He was an accessory, like a handbag on an outfit. Jesus was there, kind of, in your life. But he wasn't ruling. Something else was. But once you knew the blood-bought salvation of Jesus Christ, you knew you could not go back. There's no turning back. He's called me to the cross. I'm dying to my former way of life. He's raised me up again in the power of His resurrection to new life. I've been born again. I will not go back to death So Jesus has come and delivered us from false worship and false gods, and we will not return. Remember the story of those Israelites? They got out there in the wilderness. God has saved these people. It seems, some of them at least, physically He saved all of them. He has walked them through the Red Sea. They have witnessed the delivering hand of God. And it takes almost no time for them to say, we want to go back to Egypt because the food was good there. Oh, 
How sad. What an abomination it would be for a Christian to say such things. I want to go back to Egypt. I want to go back to my former way of life. I want to go back to my former false worship and just be like the culture because it was just so much easier. Nobody ever said that it was going to be simple and easy to be a Christian. I think for so long in this country, it was. It was a strange place to live where it wasn't just socially acceptable to be a Christian, it was socially unacceptable to not be a Christian. But the times have changed. Little by little. And they'll continue to change. We must not go back to false worship. No matter what that is. Any ideology, any type of political attachments, Those things are not the priority. Christ is. He is our worship. And we won't return. Number two, God in Christ delivers you from Satan's schemes. He delivers us from Satan's schemes. It is clear in this story, though it is not said outright, that Satan is behind all of these accusations and threats and temptations that happens to all of these men in the various stories in Daniel. This one is no different. These Chaldeans, they come to Nebuchadnezzar and they stir up hate and death against the Jews that he's promoted. You've done this, O king. It's these Jews who are opposing you. Satan knows where the Messiah of God is going to come from. And he wants all of the people there in that old covenant snuffed out. So there's no room left for a Messiah to come through. He hated the Jews then. Satan hates the Jews and the church of Jesus Christ now. But the comfort of the gospel for God's people today is that we have been delivered, saved out of Satan's schemes to destroy us. He can touch our bodies. He can, and he does. But he cannot any longer destroy our souls. Jesus Christ has saved us, and he will preserve us to the end. So Satan can still plot, he can still hurt, but we will come safely through. He still loves to accuse, but our guilt by the blood of Jesus Christ and faith in Him has been removed. So he can yell and scream and accuse all he wants to, but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He cannot destroy our souls. And we want to be wise to what He is doing out there. And yes, He can still do damage. He is underneath much of the evil that we see out there in our world. But Jesus has conquered Him. Which means we have too. So God in Christ has delivered you from Satan's schemes. It doesn't mean that we won't encounter suffering. In fact, it guarantees. Guarantees. You need to hear this. Because nobody loves suffering. But it guarantees that you will suffer in this world. You have a hating Satan. And you still have a sin nature. You will suffer. It's part of entering into the kingdom of God. Paul taught the churches very early on his missionary journeys. Through many trials and many sufferings, we must enter the kingdom of God. But because you belong to Christ, God will deliver you either from or in the fiery trial. One or the other. Just like these men said, he can. He can save me out of whatever comes into my life. But if he does not, he will walk with me through it. 
In fact, I think you would agree from your own experience that God seems to most often allow the fiery trial. We pray against it, and rightfully so, but it comes anyway. And like you see here in this passage, the Lord provides His presence while we are there in it. He's walking with us like the fourth man in the fire. Any of you folks experiencing a trial right now? You don't need to raise your hand, but I have to imagine that several of you in this room are. And this is a promise from the One who loves you and gave His life for you. That you are not alone. And as the kids learned this week in VBS, that nothing, nothing. Paul named everything in Romans chapter 8 at his disposal. Principalities and powers. Swords. Persecutions. Whatever. Nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Lastly, in Christ, God has delivered you from death. He's delivered you from death. In our story right here, God delivered these men from physical death. He intervened, and He demonstrated here that He has power over the grave. Life and death are in His hands. And in Jesus Christ, God has delivered us from death too. Now, I'm not talking about just physical death. Because every person who has followed Jesus has died. Every one of them. But every one of them, if they live consistent with their confession, has been set free from the fear of death. They no longer need to be afraid of it. There may be little concerns on how it's going to happen. You're right. We're all kind of wondering how it's going to come about. And we're not going to be charging toward it, I don't think, necessarily when we get there. But we don't need to be afraid of it anymore. We can take good courage that the final enemy, death, has been conquered by Christ. We no longer need to cower at the thought of dying. Death is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Death is not the worst thing that can happen to you. In fact, it is one of the best because it brings you into the presence of your kind and gracious King, the one you say you love and worship. So Jesus has changed our view of dying. It is a gateway to joy. Perfect joy awaits on the other side, not judgment. So in some ways, if we were living consistently, we might charge toward our death. We don't know what these men were thinking about death as they stood before the king that day. We don't know what their views on eternal life were, but what we can know for sure is that they had no fear of death. They were more afraid of dishonoring their God by worshiping an idol than they were of the scorching flames on their flesh. Christians worth their salt have always been people of conviction. They will not recant their faith for anything. They do not bow the knee to other gods. They would rather die. And so the Christians stand with these men here and prefer to lose their lives than bring reproach on the name of Christ. And I'll close with a final example here. In the mid-1500s, there was a Roman Catholic on the throne of England, and it was her aim to wipe out Protestant opposition in the Church of England. She wanted it gone. 
In her mind, it needed to be uh, made fully Catholic. She had the nickname Bloody Mary for a reason. And there were two men named Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, and they refused to give up their convictions of the truth, and they would not conform to Catholic teaching. And they were sentenced to death by burning at the stake. And as the flames were lit, it said that Latimer turned to Ridley and said to him, Be of good comfort and play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And Latimer was right. Their bodies became candles, but their faith, it created a greater flame. So as many others, even up to this day, in the English language stood against falsehood as they did. And these men were not delivered from the fire like Daniel's three friends were, but the Lord was with them just the same because the flame was not their judgment from God, but their pathway to joy in Him because Jesus was their heart's desire. They cared more about Him than bodily comfort and life. He was the object of their worship, and death only gave them more of what they wanted most, Jesus. And they would not yield that in life, and they would not yield that in death. And you and I, we are not experiencing the same level of threat that Latimer and Ridley or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, but it is of the same root. Because if we're of the same faith that they were, the same heritage as God's people, surely we can stand in our day when we are called to worship false gods. We will not serve them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning for this Word. I pray, God, that it would be a strength to us, that Your Word would be power to us to stand for You in this day when we are constantly called to bow our knees in worship to something other than You. Strengthen our faith. If You are not with us, we will fold. So look down on us, God, and please have mercy. We love You. We ask that You would grow us in love for You. That You would own our hearts that nothing else would. And that we might rightly worship You even now as we close here today. But may it not stop here, but continue on as we walk out of these walls. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close in song. We're going to 